so wonderful to, even though we're not physically present with one another, it's wonderful to be able to do this virtually. And uh, we want you to know that it's such a joy for us to be together. And what a great Savior we have that we can sing to. And I pray that your heart is just filled with thoughts of praise and adoration for our great King this morning, our glorious Christ. Let me pray for us as we begin our time in God's Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are people, especially during this time, who are in need of your grace, your sustaining grace. You have saved us, we have put our faith in Christ. You have continued to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Christ. And I pray that during these times you might sustain us in Christ. And even now, Father, as we open up your word, we are all people who are experiencing weaknesses. We know that there are a lot of distractions right now that, Lord, we face. I pray that you might help us in this next hour to remove those distractions from our minds, that we might be people who are humble and teachable to your precious word. I pray that we might be encouraged this morning, that not only may our minds be informed, but that our affections would be moved so that we are people who are living out the gospel in the, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of troubling times. We thank you for the fact that we are people who have hope, and we want to be reminded of that great hope this morning as we open up your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, or chapter 9, sorry. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13 is our text for this morning. And as you turn there, uh, remember that uh, right after the sermon, we're going to do a closing song. And um, we don't want you to tune out, but to stay tuned in, because we have a Q&A coming up with some of the elders on stage um, after our sermon and after a closing song. And so during the sermon, hopefully in a way that's not distracting to you and to others, we do want to encourage you to send in your questions that you might have specifically about the message, or it could just be about any shepherding issues that are going on right now, um, things that you would love to hear from your elders about. Obviously, we'll do the best that we can because we don't have all of the elders here, so in certain cases we will not be able to answer everything in completeness. Um, because we do lead together as men. so um, But make sure that you send those questions in about the sermon or just about any general shepherding issues that are going on, things that would be helpful to you um, as a church body. Make sure that you do that, okay? You can email those uh, in, or you can text those in as well, okay? Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. This is the Word of God. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became 
terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, for those of us who have been, who are visiting, uh, those of you who are visiting with us for the first time uh, virtually, we've been studying the gospel of Mark as a church for uh, more than a year now. And if you remember, for those of you who have been um, walking through this series together, Remember the, that we just dealt with chapter 8, verses 27 through 38 of the Gospel of Mark, and we answered three crucial questions that every single person must answer in this lifetime. The first question that we answered from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38 is, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we saw that Jesus was not just a prophet. He was not just another moral teacher, great teacher. He was not just some wonder worker. He was not just a loving, caring man. But Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the God-man. He is God. And then we answered the question, what was his purpose for coming? What was his purpose for coming? And of course, we saw that he came specifically to suffer and to die and to rise again specifically for sins, so that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ can have hope, can be forgiven of their sins against a holy and righteous God and can receive eternal life. Jesus Christ came to suffer, to die, to rise again. And then the third question that we answered was, what does he demand of every single person? And we saw that Jesus, in light of this good news of who he is as God, in light of the fact that he came to live the perfect life that we could not live, die on the cross to pay for sins, rise from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death, in light of that good news, he demands that every single person deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow after him. We were reminded of the fact that there is a high cost for following after Jesus. That just as Jesus was humiliated before he was exalted post his resurrection. So the path for any of us who desire to follow after Jesus is the same. We are to be, we, we are those who are to follow in his steps. We are to those who are following after him, denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following after Jesus Christ. If we, one day we want to um, receive that exaltation in Christ. And If you remember, in chapter 8 and verse 38, Jesus reminded us of the fact that there is a second coming. He's going to return. He says in verse 38 of 
Mark 8, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So he, he reminds us of the fact that there is a second coming. There's going to come a time when he is going to return in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And those who have rejected him, who have not put their trust in him, as the only hope for the forgiveness of their sins, of being reconciled to their Maker, He will be ashamed of them at His coming. They will be rejected forever. But those who put their trust in Him, of course, will join Him in glory. In glory. And so then we pick up that theme of glory in verse 38 of chapter 8, and we get a sneak peek into that glory that is shown to us and that will be shown to us in its fullness at the second coming in chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. This is such a, an amazing passage. I have had, it's been such a joy to study this transfiguration passage again. And as I contemplated, contemplated this amazing account, brothers and sisters, I kept thinking, what could be more relevant to our current situation than to look at the glory of of Christ. What could be more important at such a time as this to be reminded of who we follow and who we worship and who we belong to? With all the panic and paranoia going on, we don't need to saturate our thinking more on how bad things are as those who have no hope. Rather, the need of the hour is that we would have a heavy dose of the greatness and the majesty and the glory of Christ to help us make sense of all that's going on and to remind us of Christ who alone is our hope. So this is what we want to do this morning. We want to look at this passage, Mark chapter 9, verses 1-13, through 13, where we see the glory of Christ. And we want to ponder and appreciate His glory in four segments Four segments centered on His glory. The first segment is this. We see His glory predicted. We see His glory predicted in verse 1. Look there. And Jesus was saying to them, specifically His twelve disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death. That's an idiom for physical death. Who will not die until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Some have taken this promise here by our Lord to mean various things. Um, some have taken this to, be, to mean um, His future resurrection and ascension. Others believe that there, are those, there were those who were standing there who will not, would not taste death until they saw the arrival of the Spirit at Pentecost, that that's what Jesus was talking about. Others uh, think that he's speaking about the spread of the kingdom through the church. And then others believe that this is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and what happens after that. All of these have been put forward as possible views of what Jesus means, but none of these really satisfy the context. First of all, in all three Gospels where this account appears, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the transfiguration immediately follows this statement by Jesus. 
In other words, verse 1 is fulfilled by the transfiguration. Second, if you look at verse 1, Jesus says that only some, not all, of the disciples would see the event. And that came true in the fact that Peter, James, and John indeed saw Jesus, Jesus, a glimpse of Jesus' glory. Third, that word translated kingdom there can also mean, uh, refer to a king's royalty or his royal splendor. The point being that some there would see a manifestation of God's royal splendor. And that's exactly what happens in the following verses. Fourthly, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, alludes to this particular vision of these three, this three inner circle of disciples. Second Peter 1, 16 through 18, written some 33 years later, indicates from the mouth of Peter himself how he and the early church viewed the event. That this was a moment when God the Father glorified His Son, attributed honor to His Son in this amazing way. And so the point is this, that what's predicted here is fulfilled in the following verses. This is a visible preview, a foretaste of the glory of Christ to be seen in its fullness at the second coming of Christ when He ushers in His kingdom. Secondly, secondly, we see His glory previewed. We see His glory previewed. This preview happened, notice in verse 2, Six days later. Six days after what? Six days after Jesus told people about the cost of following after Him at the end of chapter 8. Six days after that famous sermon where He talks about the cost of following after Him. Now what's interesting is that the parallel account of Matthew chapter 17 verse 1 says the same thing, but Luke chapter 9, verse 28, the, the other parallel account, says that it was some eight days after Jesus said these things. This is not a contradiction. Luke, most likely what he's doing is he's, he, he adds the, the actual day that Jesus predicted the event plus the day of the event equaling eight days. And so look in verse 2. It says that six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. This was the inner circle that constantly has, has these unique experiences with the Lord. And He brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. We don't know for sure where this mountain was, but most likely most believe it was Mount Hermon, which was approximately 12 miles north of Caesarea Philippi, which is where Jesus had just been with His disciples. And why did Jesus go up there with, with His disciples? Luke 9.28 tells us that Jesus went up there to pray. More than any other gospel, Luke tells us that again and again and again, the Lord Jesus was a man who lived in the power of the Spirit, constantly dependent upon prayer. He was a God-dependent Savior. Every opportunity that the Lord had to commune with His Father, He would do that. It was His joy to pray and to spend time with God. And as he's praying, an amazing thing happens. Look in verse 2. It says that he was transfigured before them. It means to be transformed, that word transfigured. It means to be changed into another form. We get our word metamorphosis from this word, which means to be transformed, to be changed. 
Christ was transfigured. It's in the passive voice, meaning that someone did this to him, namely God the Father, as we see in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. This does not mean that he was transfigured. It does not mean that Jesus' nature changed, but that his outward appearance changed to reflect his true nature. You see, when the Son of Man came to earth, when the Son of God came to earth, He added a human nature. He never ceased to be God. He never became less than God. He added a human nature to His divine nature. So this is amazing. He is transfigured before them. Mark 9.3 says that His garments became radiant. They were shining, glittering, glistening, like beams of light. And his garments were, became exceedingly white, dazzling white, intensely white. And it wasn't that the local launderer did a good job on Jesus' clothing here, right? It isn't like Mary used some special type of bleach to clean Jesus' attire. I love this commentary in, at the end of verse 3 by Mark. Notice, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. In other words, there was no human explanation for this. This was otherworldly. This is beyond anything anyone on earth could possibly do, produce, or generate. The transformation was so dramatic that his whole attire is changed to reflect who he is. Luke 9.21 says that his attire became gleaming white, like the flashes of lightning. Luke 9.29 also adds that the appearance of his face became different, meaning that his, his face was altered. And Matthew 17.2 says that his face shone like the sun. Looking at his face was so bright that it was blinding as if you were looking at the sun itself. None of this should surprise us. Throughout the Bible, when God appears... He appears in blazing, blinding light, doesn't He? Light and fire become the, the visible representation of God's glory and God's presence. It's why we have scriptures like these, Psalm 104 and verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Yourself with light as with a cloak. I mean, that's, that's language befitting a king, befitting a monarch in all of his royal splendor and glory. And 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, speaking of God, says, "...who alone, God who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man can see, has seen, or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion, Amen. That passage is speaking of the fullness of the glory of God that no man can see, for if we would see it, we would be instantly pulverized. What is the glory of God? One pastor has defined it like this, quote, The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. The glory of God is the going public of His holiness, His otherness. His glory is the way He puts His holiness on display for all to see, end quote. I love that. His glory is shown throughout the Bible to humans 
um, in fire and blazing light represents his holiness and his great character, his awesome character, his majesty. So here we have an unveiling of this glory, just a, a glimpse of this amazing glory of Christ. By the way, it's the glory that Christ has always had. In John chapter 17 and verse 5, as Jesus looks forward to his death, he talks to his Father and he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. From all eternity, Jesus has had this glory. He's possessed all glory. And I love John chapter 1 and verse 14. Written about 50 to 60 years after the Apostle John walked with Jesus, the Apostle John wrote in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived amongst us. He tabernacled amongst, amongst us. Speaking of Christ. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, 60, 50 to 60 years later, John still can't fathom this. He's amazed at the fact that they saw a small glimpse of the glorious Christ when he came to earth as a human being. Where do we most beautifully see the glory of God? The Apostle Paul, who himself saw the risen Christ, wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 3, listen to this. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts, listen to this, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What's he saying? You want to see the glory of God? Look at Christ. Look at the glorious Christ. The greatest manifestation of God's infinite majesty and glory is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus revealed God to us because He is God. He shares in the same nature of God as the Father and the Spirit. He is God. He came as a man, but He wasn't just a man. He wasn't just another prophet. He wasn't just another moral teacher. He wasn't just a loving man who did a lot of compassionate acts. He is God. He is the God-man. The glorious Christ. Now listen, as I contemplated this passage and this preview of Christ's glory here, I thought, what a comfort to us. What a comfort to us in the midst of very uncertain times. Well, we are seeing so many changes every single day, aren't we? I mean, I can't even keep up with the news and the updates and all of that. And no matter how much news you listen to, how many updates you read and all of that, you don't even know who exactly is even saying the truth. All day long there are changes going on. And yet here we have this amazing glimpse of the glory of Christ who is the unchanging one. He's always been glorious. 
Listen, God never promised, especially during these times, that we would have all of the answers. But there are some certain, certain things that we can affirm. There is some certainty in our Christian faith. For one thing, we can be certain of the fact that this unchanging God has a purpose for all that we experience, right? James chapter 1, verses 1-12 through 12 speaks of this. That our trials, our tests that we experience as Christians are all for the particular purpose that God would refine us, strengthening our faith making us complete so that we might be complete for every good work, so that we might be prepared for that future glory when we see Him. We can be certain of that in very unchanging times. We also saw Romans chapter 8 last week, verses 28 and following, that everything that happens for believers, for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, is ultimately for God's glory and for our good. So we can be sure of that. But also, I want you to know for certain that you and I can depend upon God during this time, beloved. He is our sure foundation. His character is constant amid changing times. Christ Jesus, who is full of glory, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. He's unchanging. And the glory He unveils for His disciples was from all eternity and still is His glory. You know, I've been praying for us as a church that you and I might not be people who are leaning upon our own understanding on the ever-changing circumstances of this world, trying to answer questions that we really are not able to answer for ourselves, but that we would be people who rest upon God's unchanging character. Oh, I pray that you are going to God's Word daily to be reminded of who He is, of the glory of Christ. Brethren, listen to me. It's okay to listen to updates, to read helpful information, to be informed so that we live responsibly in this world in the face of very troubling times. It's okay and helpful to do that to a certain extent. But frankly, some of us need to get off our iPhones. Some of us need to get off our devices. Some of us need to pause, spend time with our loved ones in our home, be reaching out to others to care for others, and spending much time in the Word listening to God so that His thinking shapes our thinking. So that the mind of Christ shapes us. We are called to be Christians who are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, not the obedience of the culture around us. You know, I've been impressed with the many metaphors as I've been reading Scripture, especially the old, my Old Testament Scriptures, which point to God's gracious immutability, that He's glorious, He's unchangeable, and He is all-powerful. He's my rock, my fortress, my foundation, my deliverer. He's my refuge. He's my ever-present help in time of trouble. He is the faithful one who doesn't slumber nor sleep. He doesn't become weary or tired, Isaiah chapter 40. I mean, on and on, the amazing metaphors pointing to the glory of who God is and the implications for the way that we live. That's where our thoughts need to to be. See, our glorious high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one constant in a continually moving and changing world. And the need of the hour, beloved, is not to allow our culture or the changing times to shape our outlook 
but that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen? I pray that we are doing that by the grace of God. And so here we have the unveiling of our Lord's humanity, the momentary removal of of the clothing of His humanness, and this is merely a sneak peek. I mean, this is a small glimpse of a vastly greater glory that we're going to see as Christians one day when we're with Christ. How encouraging and how comforting that should be to us in changing times and very uncertain times that Christ never changes. Third, we see His glory proven. His glory proven. And what we have here are three sets of witnesses to the glory of Christ in verses 4 through 8. Now, even though we've already been introduced in verse 2 to Peter, James, and John, the parallel account of Luke chapter 9 verse 32 tells us that they are initially fast asleep when Jesus is first transformed. They are asleep. And so the first set of people who witness the glory of Christ are in verse 4, if you notice there. Elijah, Mark says, appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now remember, from a human perspective, Peter is Mark's primary source. So here is Peter telling Mark, this is what we saw when we woke up. Elijah was there, Moses was there, and they were having a conversation with Jesus. This is amazing. I mean, Elijah has been dead for almost a thousand years, Moses for approximately 1,400 years, and here they are. The sense is that they suddenly appeared. Luke 9.31 says that they appeared in glory, in splendor, and that the subject matter that they were discussing with Jesus was his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And I would have loved to have been a part of that conversation, wouldn't you? In other words, they are discussing his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. He's headed to Jerusalem. Everything in Mark from this point forward to the end of the book, they're headed to Jerusalem. Jesus is headed to the cross to suffer and die for sins. Now, why these two characters in particular? Why not Adam? Why not Abraham? Why not Isaiah? And I think the answer is that they represent the law and the prophets, don't they? Elijah represents the prophets and Moses the law. In fact, later on, after his resurrection, in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, Jesus would come along two particular men who were walking on a road to a place called Emmaus, and he would explain to these two individuals the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures which pointed to him, beginning with Moses and the prophets. How glorious is Christ? All of the scriptures ultimately point to Jesus Christ. He's anticipated in the Old Testament, presented in the Gospels, proclaimed by the church in Acts, explained in the epistles, glorified and worshipped in the book of Revelation. The glorious Christ is the central figure, in other words, in all of the Bible. Of course, this does not mean that we read Christ into every passage, right? Or that every single figure or furniture piece is a symbolic of Jesus Christ. But that ultimately everything only makes sense 
in the light of Christ. He is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. He's the glorious Christ. And so Elijah and Moses are these, the first set of these witnesses who are there with Christ. But then enter the second set of witnesses. As Jesus discusses His coming death with Elijah and Moses, Luke 9.32 tells us that Peter, James, and John woke up. And boy, were they blessed, right? They were also terrified and fearful, as we're going to see. But they, they too see the glory of Christ and these two men speaking with Jesus. And of course, it should have been a moment of silence, right? It should have been. As they see what they see here, Jesus conversing with Elijah and, and Moses. But as is typical of Peter, with whom most of us can identify with, he blurts out the first thing that comes to his mind, right? He's probably still half asleep, not thinking straight, as we don't do whenever we just woke up. And he says in verse 5, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. It is noble, it is right for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now why did he blurt this out? Verse 6, For he did not know what to answer, for they were terrified. Terrified. This is always the response of people in the Scriptures, by the way, when they see the glory of God. They respond in awe. They respond in fear. They respond in terror. They are terrified at the sight of God. And you know what? This is the problem with our country. This is the problem with our world, beloved. There is no fear of God. No fear of God. People's greatest problem, even now, is not the current virus that we are facing. You realize that? People's greatest problem is that they don't fear God so as to respond to that fear in seeking God, seeking to be reconciled to Him by faith in Jesus Christ. This is our problem. And you would think, as you see even everything that's taking place around us, that desperate times would drive people to their knees to seek the one true God of the Bible who was ultimately revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You would think that desperate times would drive people to God. I mean, the other day I took a family member to, to urgent care. And as, as I was checking in my, my loved one, um, the young lady who was there checking in the different patients and all of that, she said to me, just in, uh, as a passing comment, this is, this is madness, she says. This is madness. There were hardly any people there, but she was just stressed out, so much going on. She says, this is madness. I answered, yeah, it is kind of crazy, isn't it? It is kind of crazy. And then trying to get her to sort of think about things, looking for a witnessing opportunity, I asked her, don't you feel like you're in one of those zombie movies sometimes? One of those zombie movies? She says, yes! She says, where there's this worldwide disease all over the place and we're trying to avoid getting that disease. I go, yep. I go, but you know what the difference is between those movies and our world? With a sort of puzzled look, she asked me, what? I said to her, 
in our world, there is God. There is God. In those movies, there's either no God or thought of God, or people have created a God who is not involved, who doesn't care, who can do anything about it. So why even cry out to Him? Salvation and survival is up to the people. The people need to fend for themselves. Obviously, I didn't say it that passionately or in a preaching mode. Okay, I want you to know that. But I thought, you know what? Maybe that will get her to think. You know how she responded? She rolled her eyes at me and went back to work. Visibly upset that I had even made a comment like that. See, there's your problem. Even when we are desperate, we don't want to acknowledge the one true God of Scripture, and we do not want to submit to Him. And this is where despair comes in for people. If you have a belief system, a worldview where there is no God, or you are believing in a God of your own creation who isn't in control, who doesn't have any power, who doesn't love, who doesn't care, who isn't about solving the ultimate problem of suffering on this earth through the person and the work of Jesus, then you're led to despair and to fear as a way of life. Especially during these times, there is no hope. I'm sure that the disciples were tempted to feel this way many times as they walked with Jesus, as they witnessed suffering and afflictions and tumultuous times and even in their own society in the first century. But time and time again as they saw the the power and the authority of Jesus over the physical and supernatural realm, they were reminded of the fact that we have Jesus. We have Christ Like the time when they were in the boat and the terrible storm hit and they were terrified. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? Why are you afraid? What Essentially what? You people of little faith. I'm here. If you have me, you can rest in me. As long as Christ is in the boat, you're okay. He is your rest. He is your refuge. Oh, beloved, he would say the same to to us today. Why are you living afraid? Why are you living afraid? It's okay to struggle, and all of us are human, and all of us have moments of anxiety, and moments of struggle, and moments of worry, and moments of fear, not just for ourselves, but especially for those of us who are parents, for our loved ones. We have those moments, but don't live there. Don't live there as those who have no hope. Now, if you're not a Christian, listen to me. Death is the worst thing that can happen to you. For us who are Christians, what is the worst thing that can happen to us if we are Christians? Death, and that is also the best thing, right? It's the best thing. But if you're not a Christian, death is the worst thing that can happen to you. Aren't you learning the lesson if you're not a believer? Life is quickly fleeting. Life is fragile. And by the way, that was the case before this virus hit the scene in the world. Thousands of people are dying every single day. We are not in control of our lives. We never were. This is just a reminder from God to you that you are not in control of your life. 
That whether it's this virus, or heart disease, or cancer, or some accident, or diabetes, or whatever, you could die any single day. Not just by this virus. Even if you survive this virus, one day you will die. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes what? Judgment. We're going to face God. The Bible says that judgment day is coming. One day we're going to meet God and someone will have to pay for your sins. Someone will have to pay. And it cannot be you because God's standard is perfect holiness like His character and His glory. Perfect holiness. And the Bible says that all of us are sinners. All of us have missed the mark. We didn't only just miss the bullseye. We shot the arrow in the opposite direction. We missed the mark. None of us can claim that at every single moment of our existence, we have loved the Lord our God in our thinking, in our actions, in our words, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us are perfect. None of us measure up to God's perfect standard. But you know what the good news is? There is one who scored a perfect 10. The Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, lived the life of perfection that we could never live, perfectly fulfilling all of God's righteous requirements. He went to the cross and died to pay for sins, and He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. This glorious Christ is your only hope for forgiveness for reconciliation with your Creator. And the Bible says it's by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you can be saved from your sins, that you could escape the just punishment of God for your sins. The Bible says that if you confess Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. That if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be saved from your sins. Don't neglect your soul during this time. Don't miss the lesson that God is teaching you, that life is fragile, and one day you will face God in judgment, whether by dying of the coronavirus or just death, period. Well, last but not least, there's a third witness here, isn't there? Here's the ultimate witness in verse 7 of the glory of Christ. Look at verse 7. It says there that a cloud formed overshadowing them. This should be so familiar to us as we're reading God's Word. I was reading Leviticus and Numbers these past couple of weeks and seeing that whenever God visits or guides His people, Moses and the Israelites, He would come in a cloud, wouldn't He? Overshadowing Moses and the people. And that cloud represented God's glorious presence amongst His people. And so here it is. A cloud forms, and look at verse 7. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is a familiar voice. It's the voice of God the Father speaking to Christ. We heard this voice back in Mark 1.11 at Jesus' baptism, that after Jesus came up out of the water, remember, God the Father says to Jesus, You are my beloved Son, and you are. I am well pleased. That was the ultimate confirmation and affirmation of Jesus' identity as God's beloved Son. Well, here's a repetition of that. But this time he adds something. Notice in verse 7. This is my beloved Son. Listen to 
Him. Present tense imperative. It's a continuous command to be followed. Continually listen to Him. Continually heed His Word. What a commendation of the glory of His Son. Listen to My Son. He has authority. Listen to what He says first and foremost about His coming death and resurrection. But this also applies to all of life, doesn't it? Christ has the final Word. Here is God's endorsement, God the Father's endorsement of His Son who has all authority. Matthew 28 tells us this in the Great Commission. Jesus says, All authority has been given to Me on heaven and on earth. Therefore what? Go make disciples. Matthew 17, 6 says that when they heard God's voice, the disciples fell on their faces. And then Jesus calmed them down and told them, have no fear. Why? He's with them. And then appropriately in verse 8 it says, and all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. He was with them. But here's the ultimate proof, the ultimate endorsement of who Christ is. God the Father says, listen to my Son. Trust in my Son. Now why does Jesus, as we look at this, manifest himself to his disciples this way? Why does he do this? You know what? I think part of it was they needed the encouragement, didn't they? Remember what he just revealed to them in the previous passage? They're still trying to make sense of the fact that contrary to popular Jewish expectation of a conquering revolutionary Messiah, Jesus has revealed to them that the Messiah would suffer and die, and they're still trying to get their minds wrapped around that reality. They need the encouragement. That's life-altering for them, because they loved Christ. They believed in Him. On top of that, double whammy. He told them that if anyone wishes to follow after him, that they too will need to take the same path of suffering and potential death as he is taking. So they're trying to make sense of all of this. And I submit to you that they needed encouragement. They needed their faith strengthened. And you know, our circumstances may be very different than these disciples, brothers and sisters, But this is our need as well today, isn't it? How many of you are perplexed? How many of you have a lot of questions on your minds about what's going on? How many of you are are somewhat confused? You wish that you had more answers to things. This is natural and human to do, isn't it? Because it is hard. It is hard. And frankly, you know what? If these troubles are all there is then we're doomed. That's it. Eat, drink, be merry. Take advantage of however many more days God would have you here on this earth. And you know what? We die. Roll right into your death. But you know why this passage comforts me and encourages me? Because it reminds me of who I've put my trust in. My Savior, the God-man, the glorious Christ. And this, it's amazing that this glorious Christ who had glory from all eternity, even before the foundation of the world, came to earth, condescended by taking upon Himself human nature and died for my sins. Wow. Wow. 
Can I ask you, how often in the face of the difficulties that we are experiencing, have you reflected on your great salvation? How often have you pondered the great reality that because of the glorious, exalted Christ and His finished work on the cross for your sins, that your soul is eternally secure and you can rest? That your Lord Jesus died for your sins. That He absorbed God's punishment that, were aimed, that was aimed in your direction for your sins. He absorbed upon Himself your sin and instead gave you His righteousness. I hope that we are living there, brothers and sisters. Because apart from Christ, we have no hope. If there is no Jesus, I, I, I don't want to live anymore. I'm done. But Christ is the great game changer, isn't He? It's all worth it because of the risen, exalted Christ. He is our hope. He is our hope. And so while we struggle with our thoughts and we wander into anxiety and worry because we're human and we're frail and weak, don't live there. Don't live there. By the grace of God and by the grace of God alone, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Second Corinthians 10.5 Be reminded of what you've been rescued from. Preach the gospel, the good news of the person and the work of Jesus to yourself every single day. Thank Him for the cross. Thank Him for what He's done. Well, we've seen His glory, the, the, His glory predicted, previewed, proven. Fourth, we see His glory pondered. We see His glory pondered. As I mentioned, the disciples are still trying to get their minds wrapped around a Messiah who will suffer and die. And so in verse 9, after Jesus prohibits them from telling others about what they've just seen until the Son of Man rises from the dead in verse 9, it gets them thinking. It gets them thinking. Look at verse 10. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. The Jews believed in a resurrection, but that's not their issue. Their issue is that Jesus keeps talking about the fact that he's going to rise from the dead, which means that he's going to what? Die. And they can't seem to get their minds wrapped around a suffering, dying Messiah. Remember in the previous context, Peter rebukes Jesus for talking about suffering and death. And Jesus rebukes him in turn. Furthermore, it gets them thinking about the timing of things. If Jesus is the Messiah, then why hasn't Elijah come? After all, this is what the prophecies say will happen. And they got this from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 through 6. We don't have time to look at those texts in particular, but those passages predict a messenger, specifically Elijah, who would come to prepare the people spiritually before the arrival of the Messiah. And so they're perplexed by this timing. Verse 11, they asked Jesus, after discussing amongst themselves on the way down from this mountain, they asked him saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? In other words, what happened to Elijah? What's your, what's your take, Jesus? And then the Lord responds to their confusion in verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. 
In other words, the scribes are right. Elijah will come and do his work of preparation. But listen, Jesus doesn't want them to lose sight of the main thing, that Elijah's ministry and all those prophecies are to be understood in connection with Jesus' suffering and his death. What he's going to accomplish to pay for sins. And so before answering them directly, their question directly, he asks them a question. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? It's as if Jesus is saying, in your effort to understand the timing of Elijah, you're losing sight of the bigger picture that those prophecies speak of me, of my suffering and my death for sins. That's been his whole focus in his training of them. He's trying to get them to get their minds wrapped around the fact that before he comes to deliver the final death blow upon this world and establish an earthly kingdom, he needs to deal with sin first. And the prophecies pointed to the fact that he was going to deal with sin first at his first coming. Then he answers their question in verse 13. Notice, but I say to you, that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. It says Elijah has come. Matthew seventeen thirteen says that the disciples understood that Jesus had spoken to them about John the Baptist. And Matthew eleven fourteen says that John himself is Elijah who was to come. If you remember back in Luke one seventeen, when John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was told of the birth of John, the angel said that John would be a forerunner before Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah. So John the Baptist was a type of Elijah who came to prepare the way for Christ, the Messiah, who was right before their very eyes. So as they ponder all of this, the whole point is that Jesus makes in verses 9 through 13 is focus on me. You've seen a preview of who I am. It's been proven by the witnesses. I am the fulfillment of those prophecies. I am the glorious Christ. He is the glorious Christ. He is our hope. And so here in this transfiguration, brothers and sisters, we see a glimpse of of the centrality and the greatness and the infinite majesty of Jesus, just a glimpse, just a sneak preview of the glory that we're going to see in its fullness at His second coming. In light of this, the question that I want to ask for us as we close here, what are some takeaways as we consider the glory of Christ? What are some additional takeaways? You probably already have some reflections of your own, but can I call you to three primary responses to the glory of Christ, especially during this time? First, worship. Worship. Our appropriate response to the glory of Christ is to worship Him for who He is revealed to be in God's Word. You know, in Scripture, there is inherent glory. That God is glorious by virtue of who He is. We don't add or take anything away from God. He is inherently glorious in who He is. But then there's ascribed glory. The praises and the adoration that people should give Him because He is worthy of those praises and adoration. Ascribed glory. Glory. 
worship in the light of who He is. Psalm 29 says this, Ascribe to the, to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. In Psalm 96, spend some time meditating in that psalm. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds amongst the peoples. Right now, especially, we should be doing that, right? In the way that we live well under this trial, proclaiming the praises of God and His greatness and who He is and His goodness as our Heavenly Father, we should be different than the world. Psalm 96 verse 4, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name. Bring an offering. Come into His courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before Him all the earth. Just spend time, brothers and sisters, reading through the Psalms and other amazing Scriptures that ascribe glory and adoration and praise to our God because He is majestic. Because He is great. And the only appropriate response is worship. Even in difficult times right now, I pray that you are spending time singing and praising Him and expressing verbally your thanksgiving via social media or others that you come around. I pray that you are expressing gratitude in the light of everything, all of the evidences of the grace of God, even in the face of troubling times. That is ascribing worship to Him. Two, can I call us to hope? Hope. Our response to the glory of Christ is hope. Listen, the world is passing away, but not the glory of Christ. What a reminder to these disciples about this, even in our text. During their lifetime, they saw pain, sickness, deadly disease, deformities, physical infirmities, spiritual oppression, eventually full-blown persecution, Looking back at the glory of Christ would have been such a comfort and such a, an encouragement and such hope that one day they would see the fullness of their Savior's glory. Hope. Hope. We need this even now where we see a fallen world passing away. The world's glory, brothers and sisters, is withering and fading before our very eyes. Do you understand that? People, celebrities... Prominent people breaking down singers and artists and celebrities and athletes, business people, whole countries. Everyone is subject to this disease. Nobody is acquitted. Nobody is exempt. The world's glory is fading before our very eyes. It's withering before our very eyes. Not the glorious Christ who is coming one day to take those who have put their trust in Him. He's glorious. One day He's going to come in glory. 
In Revelation, He's the Lamb who has all glory. In Matthew 25, 31, it says that He's coming in His glory. This should give us such encouragement and comfort and hope if we put our trust in Jesus Christ. And if you have not, this should drive you to your knees to confess your sins before a holy God against whom you have sinned and rebelled against. Said, Lord, please forgive me. I trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you love the world and sent your Son Jesus into the world to die for sins. I put my trust in him. Please forgive me. I want to be reconciled to you. Go to this hope found in Christ. As believers, we need to live in this hope. Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4 reminds us to live in the light of that hope. We are told there that one day when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also, Christian, will be revealed with him in glory. What hope? What hope? Three, may I encourage us to respond in trust? Trust. This passage reminds us of who we put our trust in and in whom we can find rest. The more we know and understand who God is and His greatness as revealed in His Word, the more that we can rest upon Him and His character that is unchanging, that is glorious. Proverbs 3.5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean or rest on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You know, every day we trust things, don't we? Maybe you have that favorite couch or chair at home. And every single day when you sit on that couch or chair or whatever, you are trusting and depending on those pieces of furniture to hold you up to sustain you, right? Proverbs 3, 5 and the following says, that's the picture. Our man-centered understanding, our thoughts cannot sustain us, cannot hold us up. They're not a firm foundation, especially when they're not being informed by the Word of God. The slippery slope to trust in yourself, to somehow energize some wisdom from within, or to have the world inform your thinking. You need to go to the Word of God that is dependable and trustworthy. God is trustworthy. So is His Word. Let us take our thoughts captive to the obedience of our glorious Christ, beloved. You know, our prayer as your elders for our church and for the church at large has been that in the midst of all of the panic and all of the paranoia of a withering world, that our hope and trust would be on the glorious Christ, the one who has secured salvation for us so that we have hope in him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your Son. Thank you that your Word says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank you for Him. Pray that we might live in the light of our glorious Christ, that we might live well for your glory in the face of trials and testings that we are experiencing, and in so doing be a witness of our King to a world that desperately needs hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.